This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Sioux Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. We hear a lot about going net zero these days from public scolds and fear mongers who say it is the only way to prevent catastrophic climate change. But rarely do they go into what net zero actually means and would require. How our lives would have to change. Going further, some have even called for not net zero, but 100% carbon-free altogether, or even going carbon-negative, which require even more radical life adjustments. Here to discuss net zero and zero carbon today is an old friend, former co-worker, and continuing colleague, Isaac Orr. Isaac and I collaborate on work at the Heartland Institute when he was research fellow here, and after living Heartland, he became policy fellow in energy and environmental policy at the American Experiment. Minnesota's premier public policy research institute. Aside from appearing regularly as a guest on Heartland's In the Tank podcast, Isaac has authored or co-authored a number of papers analyzing the costs of going net zero that it would impose on our cities, states, and residents in various states. That's what he's here to discuss today. Isaac, thanks for being with us. Hey, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Isaac, before we jump into your analysis of Going zero carbon emissions for our listeners who may not be familiar with you. You know, maybe they don't listen to In the Tank. Uh, please tell us a little about your background, how you came to work on public policy issues, the environment and climate, and at the American Experiment. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, and that had a really big impact on this because, you know, in the summertime, uh, the cows would get really thirsty because it was hot and they would drink the water pressure down in our well so much that we didn't have water in the house. So I'd get done doing chores and I'd want to take a shower and no water. So uh, when I'm in my environmental geology class in uh, college at UW-Eau Claire, uh, we were talking about groundwater pressure, groundwater flows, well pressure. And I thought, well, this is really interesting stuff. Uh, so I ended up getting a uh, major in political science, but I also got a an advanced minor in uh, geology when I was at uh, Eau Claire. So um, I've always been interested in the intersection of policy and geology. So uh, when I was in the Wisconsin State Senate, I wrote a bunch of uh, newsletters for the, the you know, senator that I worked for. And Joe Bast, uh, previous you know president of the Heartland Institute, read one of those and said, you know, this is great. Uh, I'm going to have my I'm going to instruct my staff to write like you. Uh, and then I just said, well, Joe, why don't you just instruct me to write? And, uh, <laughs> you know, he said, well, thank you. It, it was in 2012. And, you know, uh, donors were depressed because, uh, you know, President Obama had won re-election. So he said, well, we'll put you on a list. And uh, then, you know, I didn't hear anything for months. And then Sam Karnick reached out to me and said, hey, we'd like you to write this um, paper on hydraulic fracturing for us. And. Uh, I wrote it, and they liked it enough that they created a position for me, and that's really how I got my start in public policy. So, uh, you know, thanks, thanks, Heartland, and you know, Jay Lair was great. Uh, you know, rest in peace, yeah. Jay. I was really sad to see that he had passed because you know he wrote very, very nice things about that report, and 
you know, I later learned that Jay said very, very nice things about just about everything he's ever read. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he had such a great energy. Um, but he probably, uh, you know, he probably had the energy of you, me, and five other random people I could pick combined. Absolutely. It's hard yeah. to believe he accomplished everything he did. Yep. So, but now you're at American Experiment. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So uh, since 2018, so almost five years, time flies when you're having fun. Wow. Uh, I, I've been working at Center of the American Experiment. We're a Minnesota-based think tank. Uh, and this has actually been really great. So I had reservations about leaving Heartland just because I was leaving for a you know smaller organization, smaller pond, but that really helped me be able to drill down more. So when I was at Heartland, I felt like I was trying to cover too many things and didn't have the ability to like really learn one thing. Um, and that's the benefit of working for a state-based organization. So we we basically, my colleague Mitch Rowling and I figured out how to you know calculate the cost of various electricity technologies and compare that to the existing electric grid. And uh, we've used that modeling that we've you know put together in over 13 states now. Uh, we modeled the cost of the clean electricity performance program that uh, the Biden administration was trying to uh, work through in Build Back Better. Uh, so we helped kill that by performing cost analysis in Arizona and West Virginia to influence, you know, two areas of the country that are maybe a little bit more moderate in their representatives in the Senate. Uh, and we've done it for multiple uh, state think tanks. So we've done a lot of work with the John Locke Foundation. We're going to be working with the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Michigan. So uh, really what we hope to be is the um, the brain trust or the, the modeling for center-right groups uh, throughout the country. You'll be, uh, you'll be competing, I guess, with uh, Beacon Hill. I think they've done a lot of stuff like that in the past. Bring it, Beacon Hill. I'm not afraid. <laughs> That's the attitude, man. So, Isaac, what is net zero versus what is zero? And what is the justification used for pushing it as a private goal? Because it's not just governments that are pushing it. Private companies are pushing it. And as a public policy. Yeah, so, uh, you know, <clears throat> net zero allows for offsets, right? And there's a lot of questions about how legitimate these offsets are. Um, so that's that's net zero. You know, you want to reduce your emissions as much as you can and use offsets to get to zero. And by emissions, uh, but, you're talking about carbon dioxide emissions. Correct, yes. Um, so the, uh, the zero is just we don't want you to emit anything, and uh, that's what we're looking at here in Minnesota, although uh, they are going to allow for renewable energy certificates to magically transform uh, electricity generated from a coal plant into wind or solar. So uh, there is a lot of creative accounting that happens in this space. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at. And you've done a few papers on this. Uh, oh, yeah. Minnesota seems to be a hotbed on climate change fighting activity. In particular, the legislature is considering a carbon emissions-free mandate and a low-carbon fuel mandate. Now, low-carbon is not no-carbon, so right. low-carbon fuel mandate. What do policymakers argue will be accomplished with these separate proposals? Yeah, so, you know, uh, we had our first committee hearing on the 100% uh, carbon-free electricity mandate in the House of Representatives yesterday. Yeah. And I think that our friends on the left have legitimately drank the Kool-Aid on this issue. 
and they say, well, the science says we need to do this, and you know we have disagreements about that. Um, but then they say, uh, and this will grow our economy by being turning us into an economic engine for green jobs, and it won't impair electric reliability or affordability. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, th- you know, I think that they honestly believe this. They say, well, wind and solar are now the lowest cost sources of electricity, and you know <laughs> that's not true, right? Of course not. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you look at the subsidized cost of wind and solar, yeah, it's pretty cheap, but a subsidy doesn't reduce the cost of a product. It just changes who pays for it or how it gets paid for. Um, and the, well, the and even then, but even then, even with the subsidized cost, it's only cheap on those days when, in times when it's actually operating, right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's I like, mean, you got to, th- 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 no one wants to say what needs to be said, which is if, you are supposed to be supplying a certain amount of energy to the grid and you're not supplying it someone else has to make it up you should have exactly. to, you should have to make up the cost for that that should count against your cost of operation well and that's exactly what we do in our report sterling i don't know if you looked at figures 17 or 16 and 17 in our papers but so when you talk about the cost of electricity it's almost always in the context of a metric called the levelized cost of energy right so when the when the you know greenies talk about oh well the LCOE of wind is below coal right so they're comparing the cost of new wind to new coal right and you know that's a misnomer on its face because we have enough existing coal plants to meet demand so what you really need to do is you need to look at the cost of new wind versus existing, existing coal plants. and when yeah. you do that you know the cost of wind right now in Minnesota if you're going to be using generous assumptions for capacity factor which is basically you're assuming that the wind will be more productive than it probably will be. Um, so I guess I just want to explain what a levelized cost of energy is and then get into some of this other more technical lingo because it is important for people to understand it, but I don't want to just assume that people already do. Yep. Uh, so the levelized cost of energy is essentially the long-term average cost of generating electricity from a power plant. So. Uh, basically what it does is it takes all the expenses that you have, like the upfront capital cost uh, in the loan, right? So it's like your mortgage on the house, uh, the ongoing costs of operating it, like property taxes, maintenance, employees, and your fuel costs. Uh, and then you divide that by the number of megawatt hours that will be generated by that facility over its useful lifetime. So uh, you can think of it as the cost of your car on a per mile basis, right? So um, that's that's interesting information. And you know, one of the things that Mitch and I add to conversations that we feel is very valuable is we compare the the cost of new wind and solar facilities to the existing facilities on the grid by digging through Federal Energy Regulatory Commission Form One data. So we can basically say, look, the cost of generating electricity at Minnesota's existing nuclear power plants is $34 a kilowatt hour, or sorry, megawatt hour, and a new solar facility here in Minnesota would uh, unsubsidized cost about $54 per megawatt hour, or the coal plant only costs $32 per megawatt hour. So, you know, maybe the... um, levelized cost of a wind facility is 30 28 right um but you're not really thinking about what it costs so like that's the the cost of electricity if that wind turbine is performing at its optimal performance you know over the course of its lifetime but the problem that we have is 
as the grid becomes more reliant on wind, solar, and battery storage, you need to start calculating other things into that uh, rather than just this LCOE that's very basic and inappropriate for uh, basically uh, trying to a plan an electric grid. And this is what we argue in our reports. You need to look at the cost of the entire system because wind and solar require a lot more transmission lines to connect these faraway facilities to the um, population centers that use the electricity. It also increases property taxes because you have more property to tax. <laughs> you know, it stands mm -hmm. to reason. Uh, and it also increases utility profits. So uh, this is something that I harp on a lot, and this is where some folks in the uh, libertarian movement roll their eyes at me. But I think this is a really important thing for uh, conservatives and free market-minded people to understand, is there is no free market for electricity. There just isn't. It's either you are in an integrated monopoly system, which is you have investor-owned utilities in or, you know, Minnesota, it's Excel Energy, that are sanctioned by the government, and they have the exclusive right to sell electricity to their customers. And because they have you know, this exclusive service territory, it would be wrong to let that company charge whatever they want for electricity. So the price of electricity is actually governed by a formula called the rate of return formula. So what this means, or it's a cost of service formula, and you can tell me to shut up at any point, Sterling, it's fine. Uh, so, but this, this formula, this cost of service formula says the electric company can charge enough for its electricity to make up for the cost of delivering that service to everyone, plus they get to make a 10% profit on new capital expenditures, right? So every year, the amount of money that they're able to make a 10% uh, profit on depreciates, right? So think of it as like a mortgage on a house. You buy your mortgage, and as you you know pay that mortgage every single month, the amount that you pay in interest goes down, and the amount you pay in principal goes up. So over time, the amount that this power plant, you know, let's say they build a new you know wind facility in you know Minnesota, the amount well, of profit. Before go we go there, I, I just want to say, I want our listeners to think about this for a second. If if you've got cost plus, a guaranteed 10%, so you ask yourself this, do I want to build a facility that costs uh, $5 million at 10%, or does it profit me more, not not a percentage-wise, but absol in absolute revenue, if I build a $50 million facility at 10% or a $100 million facility at 10%, right? It's, it's, you're, you're, um, incentivizing going big. Yes. And that is adding costs. Yeah. And in, in the 60, or I believe it was in the 70s, utilities were accused of gold plating, uh, their facilities. So the investor owned utility has a big incentive to spend as much as they can get the regulator to approve, right? right. So, uh, and that's why you see all of these investor-owned utilities saying, we're going to go 100% carbon-free by 2050 because it gives them a license to shut down their existing depreciated assets like their yeah. coal plants that are producing the lowest cost, most reliable electricity you can possibly have 
and you get to replace that three times over because you get to build a wind turbine, you get to build a solar panel, and you have to build as much natural gas capacity as you are retiring for coal. So you see the, you know, the profits for investor-owned utilities going off the charts. A lot of them are performing like tech stocks, although you know, tech stocks aren't doing well right now. But um, you have yeah. Excel Energy increasing theirs, We Energies in Wisconsin. Uh, there was a group of Wall Street investors that was calling the, um, the former CEO of We Energies the wizard of Wisconsin because they were making so much money by shutting down these coal facilities and building new stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm constantly, uh, when people tell me, you know, uh, oh, well, of course, um, you know, we've we got to worry about climate change. Even the utilities are on board. Look, even the utilities, they're shutting down fact plants. They're yeah, well, okay, they paid those plants off. They're not making, uh, they're only being able to charge the fuel cost, basically, fuel plus profit on that, as opposed to, Look, if you're going to ladle money on me for building a new plant, I'll build the biggest, best plant you'll allow me to get away with. Yes, exactly. And, you know, they're really green plating the grid these days because wind and solar. Uh, so, like, when you look at the levelized cost of electricity, like a lot of renewable energy advocates do, they say this is super cheap. But relying on wind and solar is incredibly expensive, right? Like, yeah. imagine that you had a laptop that worked all the time no matter what you like you only need one so uh now imagine like the laptop only works at full capacity if the wind is blowing right you would need right. multiple laptops in order to make up for that that power and i know that analogy sucks but um i'm working on it uh, so no, no but it makes sense it's like look if 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 i got a coal plant except when it's down for maintenance yep it's operating pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't have to ask if it's going to be on tomorrow. I know right. it's going to be on tomorrow. Exactly. Uh, I have so, to check the weather to see if my turbines are going to be turning tomorrow or if I'll get sun on my solar panels. Yep. And um, if not, and I still want my, as you said, let's t look at the laptop. You still want those laptops on everywhere. Um, you better have a backup. Yes, absolutely. So, and that's really what we do, what we specialize in at American Experiment is modeling the cost of this entire system that's needed in order to reliably provide electricity to uh, Minnesotans or whoever we're working with, right? Could be North Carolinans. Uh, and when we do, when you incorporate the cost of, you know, this extra property tax, this extra um, utility profit and transmission, and then you have your load balancing costs. So how much is the battery storage going to cost? You know, you can say wind is cheap, but what's the cost of the battery storage, right? So you have to figure out how do you measure the value that each resource is bringing to the grid? Because, you know, a coal plant or a natural gas plant or a nuclear plant can turn on at any moment, right? So that's pretty valuable. No. Uh, so once you think about, okay, well, once you incorporate all of that value uh, into the equation, uh, we found that new wind in Minnesota in a 100% carbon-free standpoint, because you'd have to really overbuild the grid in order to get this, uh, new wind would cost $272 per megawatt hour, <laughs> and new solar would cost 372 mm -hmm. uh, And maybe those figures are a little bit off, but they're like right in the ballpark. It's, you know, 280 270 um, yeah. so hardly, uh, har hardly too cheap to meter. Correct. <laughs> um, 
it may be too expensive to meter. Yeah, too expensive to meter. When I when I hear that, oh, wins wins uh, bidding in at a negative price today. It's like, well, okay, for five minutes today, it bid in at a negative price, and last week, uh, with the added cost, it was uh, five times what I was paying for for other sources. Yep. Well, and that's interesting too, because you're in Texas, so you're in yep. ERCOT, correct? So um, the the wind is actually so subsidized that they volunteer to lose money and steal market share from the reliable natural gas plants that are on the system. And this is why Texas is having blackouts. So right. yeah. in many areas of the country, they have uh, different electricity markets uh, and they have different services within these markets. So they'll have a an energy component where it's like, can you provide enough megawatt hours when we need them? And then they'll also have a capacity mechanism. So a capacity mechanism basically says, okay, well, we want you to have enough reliable power plants available to turn on when we need it in order to make sure the lights don't go out. And Texas does not have a capacity mechanism in its market. And that's why uh, you see wind and solar groups actually brag about the fact that the negative prices that wind and solar are putting on the grid are pushing more reliable generators off the system and forcing them to retire. Uh, in 2021, after the blackouts, I found this joint report from the Texas wind and solar groups that was bragging about, we are pushing nuclear, coal, and natural gas plants offline in order to expand wind and solar. And then blackouts happened, right? So uh, we have an enormous problem in this country, and it's because we're not appreciating reliability as the cornerstone of everything. Like even cost is a secondary consideration to reliability. I was, a, I was a before all this wind and solar, and before uh, when Texas was just going um, setting up its system. I was a, I was a gross optimist, and the reason was precisely what you said. Uh, I'd give speeches. And they'd say, well, isn't coal going away? I said, oh, of course coal isn't going away. I said, look, there are two critical factors with electric power that people care about. Price, their cost, what they pay on their bills, yep. and reliability. And of those two, the thing they care about more is reliability. They'll pay more for energy to make sure their refrigerator is operating, their air conditioner comes on when they want it operating, their lights come on when they want it operating. I said, I'll pay more for electricity to make sure my bison in the freezer out in the garage yep. doesn't thaw out. It costs me too much money. So yep. I said, so they'll never wreck the reliability. And God, I was so wrong. Yeah, I, I just couldn't, couldn't imagine. Have been more wrong, I, 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 yeah, no, I just I couldn't imagine legislators and, and, and uh, regulators would be so stupid as to uh, allow the system to shut down baseload power. But yeah. I, I was wrong. I, and that's happening in, in more and more places right. around the country, unfortunately. So uh, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, NERC, sets standards for reliability for all of the areas of the country, all of the regional electric grids. And they say that the one that Minnesota is a part of, uh, which is the Mid-Continent Independent Systems Operator, or MISO, uh, is the most at risk of blackouts in the in the near future because we have more coal plants retiring than we have reliable generators entering the interconnection queue. Or basically, uh, people like Excel Energy, uh, companies like Excel Energy, rather, are shutting down their reliable coal plants, and they say that they're going to replace it with solar 
and a mystery firming resource in the future. <laughs> so I like uh, that. Mystery firming resource. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, so they say, uh, well, the environmentalists want to push them into battery storage, mm-hmm. and the company says they want gas peakers. So um, regardless, you know, I think that this is, you know, the idea that natural gas is a one-to-one replacement for coal is deeply misguided, and yep. we're seeing this in a lot of areas. So Tennessee Valley Authority had blackouts for the first time ever uh, around Christmas time because some of their natural gas infrastructure wasn't working in the cold. Uh, we see the same thing happening in other parts of the country. Like uh, the the beauty of a coal plant is that it has a couple months worth of fuel possibly on site at all times. And you can get more rail cars in if you need it, right? right. So uh, the just-in-time delivery of natural gas, if you have a compressor failure or you have to interrupt the uh, – So a lot of these natural gas plants have interruptible contracts, which Mm -hmm. means if you need the natural gas for home heating, it goes to the home heating instead of the natural gas plant. So and that doesn't work either because all the furnaces need electricity for the blower fans. So uh, Meredith Angwin, if you haven't had her on the show, you need to have her. Uh, She wrote this amazing book called Shorting the Grid, and she talks about the fatal trifecta. And the fatal trifecta is an over-reliance on natural gas for just-in-time electricity. The next leg is an over-reliance on imports. And the third is an over-reliance on uh, intermittent renewable generators. And we're making all of these same yeah, problems uh, in look, every part of the country. It's, it, it defies logic that, that people continue to, to believe that anything other than renewables and the over-reliance on on-time natural gas, but but mainly for me, I think, renewables yep. and grid capacity, frankly, um, is responsible for the fact that it's no wonder that since we've been mandating more and more wind and solar on the grid, blackouts and brownouts across this country have gone up dramatically. The grid didn't fall apart overnight. It, you no. know, no, we have an aging grid. There's no question about that. A lot of the wires have been built a long time ago, uh, but it didn't happen overnight. And Listen. yet the failures are happening overnight. It's They're happening. You, you add wind, you start seeing blackouts. You add solar, you start seeing brownouts and blackouts. That's the facts. And if those and if people can't make that connection, they're just lying to themselves. Yeah, it's gradually, then suddenly, right? Yeah. So uh, mm-hmm. the the reliability of the grid has been undermined. I would argue, you know, the Bush administration did no favors to nope. the United States in terms of energy policy. Nope. They were, you know, Obama light probably. But you know, you had the mercury and air toxic standard. You had the clean power plan that incentivized a lot of these utilities to start or start shutting down their even relatively young productive coal plants oh, and. Uh, we replaced that a lot with natural gas, but to the extent that now uh, I, I'm calling them green group blackouts. So these, uh, you know, if you're in a state that's vertically integrated, which most most of the country is, right? You have a system where your utility company goes to the regulator, whether that's a public utilities commission or a public service commission, whatever they're called, and they say, hey, we want to do. We want to build this plant and shut down this plant down. They have to go through this process. It's very convoluted um, and very difficult for the average person to participate in, but it it exists, right? And 
what happens is the green groups are very well funded uh, and they push the utilities commission to say, no, you need to have them close down their coal plants 10 years before that asset is even really scheduled to go offline. And you can only replace it with wind, solar and battery storage. And this happens a lot more in blue states than red states. It's why like Illinois is a you know capacity sink on the MISO system. Um, and it's going to continue to be that right as they mandate more more coal plants get shut down. So, well, uh, and it's to be fair, regulators are bad. Yeah. They, they cave in or they uh, they buy into these false arguments. But in a lot of states. Uh, the regulators' hands are have been bound to some extent by what happened in the legislature, right? Legislators get bought by these yep. green power companies. Yep. They mandate ever greater amounts of wind and solar, and it's usually regardless of the cost. It's like, Correct. here's the percent you must supply, nothing about cost. And then the Public Utilities Commission is left with, well, okay, we've, we've got to supply it. We've, you know, that that's the law. That's um, true. And so, you know, the, they go along. And a lot of times you have this kind of like disgusting uh, partnership, I will say, between the green groups and the utility companies, yeah. right? The utility companies are lobbying for the legislation that requires them to shut down their coal plants so they can build more renewables and increase their corporate profits. So I probably sound like Bernie Sanders on this, uh, <laughs> but – this is not a truly private company. This is a government-approved monopoly, yep. and therefore we have a responsibility as free marketers to try and, uh, you know, they're going to call it picking winners and losers, but you, we need to start picking winners because otherwise only losers are getting picked, right? Well, and otherwise um, we're all the losers, right? Correct. We're, 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 we're enshrining an elite and making everyone else the loser at their expense. So – um, we've, we've, uh, been talking about important stuff, but I want to get back to your analysis, sure. both of, you know, what specific impact did you find in your study for, uh, these goals in Minnesota? And you did another one for, uh, for Wisconsin, another state, which is sort of virtue signaling itself into economic oblivion. Yeah. So in Minnesota, we found that this would cost $313 billion with a B through 2050. Um, so uh, basically, it would just require a massive expenditure of money on wind turbine solar panels and battery storage facilities with the associated costs that we've talked about before that play into that levelized cost of energy that uh, we talk about. Uh, so yeah, figures 16 and 17 in our report really go into this. But we also compared that to the cost of achieving this net zero uh, or, or yeah, zero emissions, you know, 100% free carbon-free mandate with new nuclear power plants, carbon capture and sequestration. Instead, just to show that there is a way that's like more reliable and more sensible, and the legislature has just completely ignored that. In fact, the 100% uh, carbon-free bill that passed the House yesterday would not lift Minnesota's ban on building new nuclear power plants. So. They say climate change is an existential crisis, but they're unwilling to legalize the one technology that provides reliable, affordable, carbon-free electricity 24 hours a day. So uh, they basically are gambling with our electric grid. They're going to leave us vulnerable to blackouts. So uh, you know, from a cost perspective, we found that it would cost the average Minnesota household electricity customer an additional $1,600 every single year. 
right, through 2050. So that is a massive amount of money that you're taking out of the household budget for the same amount of electricity that they are currently consuming. Uh, large industrial customers would be hurt even more. Uh, they would pay an additional uh, $222,000 a year. So good luck having a, an economy like Minnesota's that's heavily reliant on manufacturing and mining when electricity <laughs> prices are that high. So uh, Minnesota produces about 80 to 90 percent of the iron ore that's produced in the United States. And those mines use massive quantities of electricity. Energy, yeah. yeah. So the there's two mines in uh, northern Minnesota that use as much electricity as Minneapolis and St. Paul. Right. So. Uh, it's it's pretty wild. Uh, they use about enough electricity to power half the homes in the state. So um, just incredibly energy intensive. And they're already facing pressure uh, from energy prices to shut down. So uh, while we are a big fish in the United States, it's only 2% Minnesota's output of global iron ore production. So we're going to lose those jobs. And those are great paying jobs for you know normal folks. Like that is... Uh, that's the backbone of the northern Minnesota economy. And, you know, the folks who are pushing this uh, agenda uh, don't care. And at it's the same time, frustrating. At the same time as you're adding what, if it's $1,600 a year, so what, about $130 a month to every household's yep. bill, right? Yep. Uh, yep. That's just, uh, well, that's uh, 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 political malpractice. Someone, someone should be sued for it. What, so what were the findings in Wisconsin? I suppose they're going to be pretty similar. Yeah, they were pretty similar, but we allowed for new nuclear power plants to get built in uh, Wisconsin a little bit. Uh, we didn't have a ton just because there aren't many proposed, but, uh, you know, the... In theory. In theory, yeah. you can build a nuclear power plant in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. So that was only $248 billion uh, dollars through 2050, but the Wisconsin standard is... Uh, by 2050. And in Minnesota, it's by 2040. So wow. like, they're basically accelerating the timeline. Like if you wanted to have a standard that was we're going to do this by 2080, like, okay, like, I don't like mandates, but that one's probably achievable or more reasonable. It's less stupid <laughs> than 2040, right? Uh, so the, the wild thing about this, Sterling, is uh, so our report found that you would need 47,000 megawatts of wind in order to help meet this 100% uh, carbon-free mandate. Uh, so in the next 17 years, you'd have to build – Oh, so, so in the last 15, 16 years, Minnesota went from having 1,000 megawatts of wind to 4,300 megawatts of wind. Right. So you would have to build 10 times more wind over the next 17 years than we did over the last 16 years. So, like, these people aren't serious at all. Um, so we had, you know, basically the same results in Wisconsin. Yeah. They were lower cost because the uh, ex pushing up that timeline by 10 years is incredibly expensive. Um, so, you know, in, you know I, I grew up in Wisconsin, born and raised on a, on a dairy farm. I wasn't born on the dairy farm. I was born in a hospital. But you, you understand the gotcha. phrase. Uh, so to me, this is very personal. Um, yeah. And Governor Evers is going to do what he can in order to push forward his, you know, 100 percent mandate. And the utilities there are just happy to print money. So uh, in Wisconsin, the conservatives in the legislature need to understand that the utilities are not their friends. The utilities right. donate a lot to their campaigns, but the interests of the utilities are in the exact competition with those of their constituents. And that's the big problem in a lot of red areas. They don't under the 
utilities there, granted, haven't been as greedy as they have been in, say, Minnesota with Excel Energy. But ultimately, uh, when it comes to their bottom line, the incentives are not aligned and it's going to hurt their constituents. And they need to understand that the utility company is not your friend. Yeah. So big, big picture, Isaac, if you can make just one point, what's the most important single point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion today? Reliability is the number one priority for the grid. Uh, affordability is the number two priority of the grid. And if you can get carbon free on top of it, cool, but that can't be your primary consideration. So I consider this an energy pyramid, right? The base of the pyramid is reliability. Next is affordability. And the pyramid has been inverted and it's unstable. And that's why we're seeing a bunch of blackouts. And it's going to, the the blackouts will continue until policy improves, right, Sterling? Yeah. So uh, we really, really, really need to stop retiring coal plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I mean, that just needs th- – there needs to be some sort of national moratorium on it. And I know I sound no, wild I when I say that. Uh, I used to think people who said that were crazy you know, seven years ago when I started working on these issues for Heartland. But now it is like abundantly clear that we need – we're in a reliability hole and we need to stop digging. You know, I proposed in Texas, and I wish they'd, you know, they've they've talked about similar bills, but uh, that every dollar in subsidy that um, wind and solar get in the the state should be taken away from them and until uh, – and and given to uh, coal plants or nuclear plants uh, for their share of making up Correct. The deficit and for their share of losses when wind and solar are bidding in negative because of the subsidies. Yeah. Um, that that keep that doesn't say you can't retire a coal plant, but it, it keeps coal plants operating because they're now making money. And it, um, I think, fairly shares the burden of all the wind and solar from the people that have uh, pushed for it. Right. It, They're they're benefiting from these subsidies. Uh, They go away every time the subsidies disappear. Uh, Factories shut down, wind factories shut down for the month that they haven't had an omnibus renewing the the wind and solar subsidy, the production tax credit, which tells you they don't make it on their own. They're still not ready for prime time, absent government support. And uh, if uh, to level the playing field, you need to take that support away from them at the state level and say, okay, well, okay, you're getting this in subsidies. Here's how much of it it has to go to keep baseload plants online. So when you fail and you do, (laughs) we still have power. Yeah, absolutely. Some folks at uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation are working on that right now. They're calling it a firming requirement. So if you – Sounds like you know a bunch about it. So, uh, well, know, about Texas, have, yeah, you know, yeah. as a as a Dallasite who sat in the cold when he never expected to have his power go out in the in the winter, uh, who who sat under a buffalo blanket for three days in the cold as the temperatures inside the house got down to the low fifties. Um, believe me, I, I'm very aware of what's going on in Texas. Yeah, we're getting a snowstorm, so I'd I'd probably. Uh, do some bad stuff for 50 degrees right now, Sterling. But uh, <laughs> I understand your point. It's yeah, not but, but, 50 but, inside my house. I was about to say, you're, yeah. you're not talking inside your house, though. Right, uh, right. So, um, Isaac, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I want to thank you for coming on the show on behalf of myself and our listeners.
Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, have me on anytime you like, Sterling. I'll, I'll reach back out. Uh, especially I'm looking forward to your future papers. So we'll have you back on when you got a new paper out for sure. Perfect. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Harlan's website as, as we follow the work of Isaac Orr and the other scholars at the Center of the American Experiment and as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, please consider attending Heartland's forthcoming international, uh, 15th International Conference on Climate Change at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista in Orlando, Florida, Thursday, February 23rd through Saturday, February 25th. The conference will have panels and presentations from many of the world's top climate and energy experts discussing the latest climate science and the wrong-headed energy and policy solutions the governments seem determined to impose on us all. Also, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye. <laughs>